Welcome to the Historias Podcast. I'm Foster Chamberlain. From streaming music to TikTok videos to podcasts, recorded sound and the large corporations that produce much of it is ubiquitous in our lives. But few of us give much thought to how it all started. Today, we'll have the chance to do just that with Eva Moreda Rodriguez, a reader in music at the University of Glasgow and author of the recent book, Inventing the Recording, The Phonograph and National Culture in Spain, 1877 to 1914. As we explore how sound recording got started in Spain and early attempts to commercialize it, we'll have the chance to listen to some of these early recordings. You may want to listen to this episode in a quiet place since the audio can be faint and difficult to hear. So Eva, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you. I'm really happy to, to be here. I wanted to just start out with the basics. Could you tell us when the phonograph was first invented and how these early phonographs worked? Well, uh, the phonograph was first invented by Thomas Alva Edison in 1877. Uh, and these uh, were what we call mechanical recordings. So basically the principle is that obviously sound produces uh, sound waves and these can somehow be captured in a, in a physical support. So the first support that Edison used was a tinfoil, so a sort of tinfoil um, band um, in his 1877 phonograph. And there was a stylus which would capture the sound waves and incise them, impress them uh, onto the tinfoil. Now, uh, this tinfoil material was very fragile, was quite precarious. So those first phonographs, as we probably uh, discuss later, didn't have much fortune. So they were like something interesting, something geeky. But it was not until about 10 years later, about 1888, that Edison really said to perfect um, those first phonographs. And then the support changed from a tinfoil to wax cylinders. Okay, and, and that would last much longer, I presume. Mm -hmm. Now, I understand that none of these very early recordings from Spain survive, given their precarious nature, I assume. But we do have a clip here from a recording of Handel's Israel in Egypt from 1888. So could you tell us a little about uh, what makes this recording so special before we listen to it? Yeah, this is one of the very earliest recordings that we have. I mean, as you suggested, tinfoil recordings not many of them did survive, so none for Spain and for other parts of the world, it's very limited what we have. So it's not until Edison introduces the wax cylinder in 1888 that we start having relatively more uh, recordings. So this was um, this is a recording of a Handel uh, chorus for one, from one of his uh, oratorios. So Handel's oratorios were exceedingly popular in the 19th century in the UK because, as you might know, Handel spent a while in England uh, and so he was very popular there. And this is really one of the first attempts at capturing music on wax cylinder with some kind of you know, quality standards, so to speak. Uh, so this was recorded um, at a festival in, I think it was Alexandra Palace, so one of the big venues in London. And probably what we will hear in the recording is uh, how difficult it was to capture this kind of sound, especially the, the, the masses of choral singers. So this was one of the most difficult things to do that actually took recordists many decades really, you know, to be able to record large groups of people, either singers or even more difficult uh, orchestras. Right. Okay. So let's go ahead and listen to this clip 
from Handel's Israel and Egypt. As you mentioned, when I listen to that recording, I'm really impressed by how it, it sounds very distant, which presumably is because it was such a large audience, but also it's from such a long time ago. And there's so much distortion that you, you actually feel like you're listening to the distant past. So if that's what some of these early recordings sounded like, then when and how did they first come to Spain? Well, uh, we have evidence that when the phonograph was first invented, so the phonograph was invented in 1877. In 1878, we have evidence of the first demonstrations of the, the original phonograph. Uh, so first in Barcelona and then in Madrid. And these were basically scientific events. So the goal was really to, to prove to people that this marvelous invention had been developed in the United States and it could really capture a sound and play it back. So for the next few years we have some evidence of other scientific demonstrations for about um, five, five, six years. We find in the newspapers like some people who were doing demonstrations but after that really there are another about five years where nothing much happens until Edison um, invents the perfected phonograph in 1888. And then this is really when the phonograph starts to have more of a presence in Spain. Were these purely kind of demonstrations that it is possible to record sound or did people think that there could be practical uses for this invention as well? Yeah, so um, uh, the interesting thing is that when Edison um, developed the first phonograph, he wrote an article and, I th and he listed, I think it was 10 uses, 10 potential uses of the phonograph. And what is interesting is that then you find articles all over the world, which really, uh, even without quoting Edison, they basically go back to the same ideas. So, I mean, I suppose this makes me think, this, this poses the question, were they all inspired by Edison or is it that different people came up with the same ideas independently, which I think would be a kind of much more exciting possibility, but I, I guess we don't know. And uh, so Edison and many of his contemporaries basically thought that the phonograph's use uh, was really in office work, uh, administration, so things like instead of writing a letter you could record your words to send to your commercial partner or, or whoever it was. And also a kind of really interesting one, which I think sounds very weird to us, uh, is um, the, the use of the phonograph to record the voices of the dead. Not really of the dead, of course, but Edison and many others wrote about how uh, with the phonograph you could record the voices of your loved ones, your, your family, uh, your, your romantic partner or whoever it was, and then after they died, it, it meant you still had a part of them um, living with you, so to speak. Yeah, that is interesting, especially, well, of course, nowadays we use recorded sound for everything, but I think what first comes to our mind is music, mm -hmm. but that, that wasn't the first thing that, that came to their minds. Um, 
I think we just take it for granted now that we can hear these voices from the past through recordings, but perhaps that was most what was most new to people when when it, the technology first came out. Now, as we move into the 1890s, and I think, as you said, once this possibility is there with that improved phonograph, I understand that there were traveling demonstrations around Spain of the phonograph that became quite popular. So what would one of these traveling shows be like, and uh, how did people react to the invention? Yeah, so um, here is probably worth mentioning that throughout the 19th century in Spain, but also elsewhere in, in the world, especially in Europe, there were certain forms of so-called scientific entertainment that were very popular. So, for example, uh, panoramas, which were 360 degree photos. So you basically you would walk into a room and you kind of would be immersed in some sort of landscape or it could be like a historical monument or something like that. Uh, so initially, all, all these um, entertainment forms were based on um, vid visual technology, so fo photography mostly. And with the phonograph, uh, basically, the possibility was uh, opened up to, to introduce audio as well uh, into the realm of these entertainments. Uh, so, so basically, what happened is that um, fanfare operators or people who maybe had experience with some of these panoramas and with kind of similar kinds of entertainments, basically they would tour Spain or they would tour a region of Spain, and wherever there was a local fiesta or a yeah sort of fair, uh, basically they would set up. It could be some sort of uh, stall, some kind of stand. Sometimes they would set up in the hall of a hotel or in a theater or even in a church or in a uh, in an inn so in any kind of kind of public um, public establishment sometimes for example they might be invited to a local society a local ateneo which was a um, society for for scientific uh, the advancement of scientific knowledge and basically what would happen is that normally a range of individuals typically local musicians or also local celebrities, people who were known at a local level, they would record a few cylinders in front of the audience, so they would maybe sing or play an instrument or give a sort of short speech, say something in front of the phonograph, then the phonograph would capture the sound and it would be immediately played back. So really the appeal in these demonstrations was not so much to hear a recording, but rather to, re to reassure yourself that there was no a fakeness in it like basically you would be seeing all the process and and you would see well this is like the famous local singer and i know her voice and now i can see that yeah her voice has been captured into this um into this invention uh, so it's great to really ascertain what people thought of the phonograph is quite difficult because we do have um press art articles in the press uh, but they are they are invariably very praiseful. They say everyone was really impressed and the, the sound was really uh, indistinguishable from the real sound. I doubt everyone really thought like that, you know, because we have heard the handle now and even taking into account the deterioration. I mean, I think it would be very difficult to, to kind of really think that this is really indistinguishable from hearing a live choir. So, you know, so of course, you know, we also have to be cautious that obviously these, these articles might have been influenced by Edison's own publicity or by, by other kinds of discourses. Well, that's that's very interesting, yeah. And I think also that people were more interested in hearing a sound that they already knew, just to be assured this actually worked, than to hearing a sound they weren't familiar with, which is 
ultimately, I think, what the phonograph came to be useful for. Now, um, by the late 1890s, these traveling phonographs were being replaced by Gabinetes Phonograficos. So could you just tell us, what is one of these uh, Gabinetes Phonograficos? Well, so basically, in the mid-1890s, Edison launched um, a new brands of phonographs, so he kept obviously perfecting the phonograph. And this meant that these new phonographs, uh, apart from the sound being better quality, they were also easier to operate. So really, this is when the, the idea of having a phonograph in your own home became a possibility, at least for the wealthiest people in society. And so, yeah, so basically elsewhere in the world, they started to develop a market for what we might call domestic phonography. And the Gabinetes Phonographicos were, in a way, the, the Spanish response to that. So, so basically, the Gabinetes were typically, they were um, like a sort of sideline to existing businesses, especially in scientific or technical fields like pharmacies or manufacturers of scientific equipment or electricians. So basically, this would be people who obviously had a familiarity with science and technology, familiarity and an interest. And so they probably heard about the, the, the new phonograph and they, for some reason, thought there was some commercial opportunity uh, in, in selling those kinds of things. So basically, they started selling phonographs, cylinders as well. But obviously, one of the issues was that most of the cylinders uh, were being made uh, in the US and in France as well. And so they would obviously uh, cater to those audiences. So, for example, you would have a lot of US military marches and maybe the Spanish public you know, it's not something that maybe they would be really, really willing to listen. So basically what the cabinetes did was also to, to record in their own premises, uh, to record their own cylinders with the types of music that was popular among Spanish audiences. So a lot of opera, I mean, opera obviously was popular elsewhere, everywhere really, but also zarzuela, so Spanish zarzuela, this is obviously more Spanish specific, flamenco as well, obviously very, very Spanish specific. And so this is this was what most of the gabinetes recorded. Mm -hmm. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. So let's go ahead and listen to one of these gabinete recordings. This is the coro de repatriados from the zarzuela Gigantes y Cabezudos de Manuel Fernández Caballero. It's recorded about 1900 by Madrid's Ugens y Acosta gabinete. that's a fun recording uh i like that one and i think especially um i listened to a couple of other recordings of this 
song and it strikes me how it this version is more sort of fun it almost <laughs> sounds like flamenco or even you know early mariachi recordings from mexico that uh, i i guess it was just a very different style of of singing that people had back then in these not as operatic you might say uh, for these sarsuelas but what's your impression of it how is this gabinete cylinder um, different from the kinds of recordings that we might have heard from the traveling demonstrations that we talked about previously. Yeah, so obviously an issue here is that uh, we don't have any of the recordings from the traveling demonstrations, so we cannot easily compare, but this already tells us something, which is that basically the, the recordings made during the traveling demonstrations were not really made to last. Basically, they would be made in the moment to reassure the audience that, yeah, you know, this is the person here and we've recorded their voice. But probably after that, I mean, I imagine they would be discarded, they, like they wouldn't hold any particular interest. Obviously, with the gabinetes, we have a, a, a quite um, stark change of mindset. So, so basically, we have the beginnings of what we can call record collecting. So people would be starting to build their, their collections. Uh, and so from the gabinetes, there was this preoccupation. And th this is especially the case with Ugencia Costa. So Ugencia Costa was the, the longest lasting gabinete. And it was also the most the most productive, and also in many ways it was the best in terms of the, the quality of its recordings. So especially Ugencia Costa, they were uh, there was some kind of strategy in terms of what are we going to record. So obviously pieces that will speak to our audiences, uh, and how are we going to record it? So there was a preoccupation not just with the quality of the sound, but with the whole framing, so to speak, of the recording. So as you might have seen, there, uh, there was an announcement at the beginning. There was a spoken announcement, which is typical of all cylinders. Again, the performance you mentioned it being quite um, quite fun, quite joyful, and and I agree. This uh, a quite brisk tempo, uh, and obviously this yeah this this gives a different quality to the. Um, to the recording uh, and I think in, in this case it might be that the fact that this was a recording is what um, determined that Ugensia Costa wanted to record this piece in a brisker tempo because obviously seeing this, this chorus on stage with all the acting, all the dancing, all the kind of scenography would be very different than just listening to the sound. So one of my theories, one of my the ideas that I've been kind of working on is that the choice of tempo uh, was really, the aim of this choice of tempo was to to bring some of the quality of the, um, of the live performance into the recording, but obviously without all the visuals. So that was a challenge. And and also that the cylinder only lasted, was it two and a half minutes? So I imagine they had to get the timing to fit on the cylinder as well. In your book, you link both the traveling phonographs and the gabinetes to this regenerationist movement that was occurring at that time among Spain's uh, intellectuals. So what was the connection between these recordings and this intellectual movement? Yeah, so um, basically for, for listeners who might not be familiar with regenerationismo or the regeneration movement, this was basically about um, Spanish intellectuals uh, advocating for uh, modernizing Spain, making it more like the rest of Europe. Uh, and obviously science played a huge part in this. So there was a perception, which obviously, you know, was through many respects that uh, Spanish 
science wasn't as developed as it was the case elsewhere in the, elsewhere in the world, both in terms of the actual primary research, but also in terms of applying that research to industry or to, or to commerce. And obviously here you, you can see how the, the phonograph very obviously resonates with those ideas. So, so there was this idea that this is a new scientific development that can actually make your life better, your, your quality of life better. It can also help you, you know, develop more of a taste for these um, works of art, uh, works of music and so on. And so some of the gabinetes, especially in Madrid, if you read their publicity or the articles that the owners wrote, they really, they really engage with this idea. So there was this idea that everything we do in this gabinet is, is informed by science. We are up to date with the latest developments. Uh, they also um, uh, highlighted, for example, like how much they were exporting, because obviously this means if you are exporting, it means the economy of your country is, hope, is hopefully benefiting from that. So. To me, it was, you know, really clear uh, reading those documents that there was a more or less conscious attempt at relating to, to the regeneration movement. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And by the way, if listeners are interested more in the um, connection between Sarsuela, where the genre that these clips are from, and the politics of the time, we did a podcast a while back with Clinton Young on that subject. So you may want to listen to that one as well. In any case, another thing that struck me as very interesting in your book is that you identify Madrid as a center for these gabinetes, uh, which kind of makes sense, but also Valencia, which I thought was more surprising. Whereas you said that Barcelona was less of a center, which also surprised me. So why do you think that it took off more in some cities than others? Yeah, I think that's a very interesting question. Uh, and in my book, I try to give some answers, but I suppose um, in a way it's, it's impossible to, to, really, to really know what happened. I think what was something that was quite different between Barcelona and Madrid is that in Madrid, the gabinetes interacted much more with the local opera and farfuela theaters to the point that many of them were located very close, like next door or around the corner from, from theaters. And so one of the ideas that I've been working with is that with theater goers just walking past the, gabin past the gabinetes on their way to the theater uh, or back from the theater, maybe this, um, this made them uh, want to you know, buy some of those recordings. And in Barcelona, this, this didn't happen. So basically, the, the theaters were in like a completely different uh, part of town um, than the Gabinetes. I think in, in Madrid there were um, a few a few gabinete owners were very decisive. They were very keen to um, especially connect their products to the, to this regeneration movement. And in Barcelona it seems they there just wasn't that interest. I mean, so I think sometimes uh, it was down to maybe a couple of individuals really active, being really kind of uh, proactive, and then others following on that. But in Barcelona for some reason those individuals just, you know, weren't there. So, for example, while in Madrid, as, as I said, there were these connections with the regeneration movement. In Barcelona, I found it quite surprising that the Barcelona gabinetes never tried to establish connections with the Catalan nationalist movement. So, for example, I don't have any evidence of the Barcelona gabinetes having recorded Catalan language music, which maybe would be an obvious thing to do, but they didn't. Um, and this only happened later on, you know, when the gramophone arrived in Spain. 
Now, um, as we were preparing for this podcast recording, I asked you for one of your favorite recordings from the era, and you suggested one from another Sarsuela, La Vigesita. So why did you pick this one? What do you like about it? Well, first of all, I, I really like the, the piece. I really like the melody. I think it has this, um, it's this mixture of zarzuela, but already with kind of uh, some influences from operetta uh, or operette, uh, French operette. So, which I think brings brings back the point that um, obviously zarzuela is a very vernacular and localized genre, but this doesn't mean it was completely isolated of what was going on elsewhere in Europe. I mean, obviously there's, all of these different vernacular music theater genres, such as operetta, operette, uh, and others. And Zarzuela was part of that ecosystem. So uh, that was one of the reasons. And also this, this was one of the most recorded pieces in the early years of um, the phonograph and the gramophone. Uh, so with other pieces, sometimes maybe you just have one recording and it is very difficult from one recording to draw conclusions about styles of singing. But with this one, uh, we have not many, you know, but maybe we have five or six recordings uh, from between the late 1890s and up until 1910, so something like that. And even um, even recordings by the same singer, uh, Lucrecia Arana, especially, who was a very famous Tarzuela singer. This also allows us to make comparisons and maybe get closer to to really understanding how Zarzuela was performed at the time. Okay, great. So let's listen to this clip from Couplet de la Vigesita, which is also by Manuel Fernandez Caballero, and it's recorded by Ruperto Regorosa in his home in Barcelona. Couplet de la Vigesita, por la distinguida artista señorita Alcácer. Yeah, that's fun to listen to one of your favorites. And I think kind of like what I was saying with the last recording, what really strikes me is just how different the style of singing is from what we may be used to today. It, it almost reminds me of the vaudeville that you sometimes hear in the United States, which I guess was a fairly similar time. But you talked about this a little with the last recording. Could you, could you say something about this as well, about how this performance might have been adapted to um, the recording format. And also, I know that performance practice wasn't the focus of your research, but uh, maybe you could say a little about what we might be able to learn about that from this recording as well. 
Yeah, so um, one obvious way in which um, these pieces would be adapted to the to, to recording was by cutting some sections because, I mean, as you said earlier, so cylinders, there were two minute ones and four minute ones, and really they could be extended by maybe two minutes up to maybe two and 40 seconds or 50 seconds, but obviously still, you know, some areas or some pieces wouldn't fit within those two minutes, 40 seconds. So basically what they what they did was maybe cut a stanza or maybe if there was like an instrumental passage, they would cut it. So, you, you know, this, this is like an obvious way. But also in terms of the performance practice, so I hadn't listened to this recording for a, a while and what surprised me is the how, how flexible the tempo is. So instead of keeping a steady tempo, so the performer is uh, slowing down at some points, speeding up in others. And I think from our contemporary point of view, this, this might even sound a bit kitsch, a bit too over the top. Um, actually, I have been also working on an, on an article where I, I deal with uh, these kinds of tempo changes. Um, and one of my one of my theories, one of the ideas I've been working with, is that um, this is something that was very obviously very prominent in the early years of the 20th century, so late 19th, early 20th century, and then it gets almost completely wiped out throughout the next decades. And I think the re recordings really have to do with it because if you imagine yourself in a performance, and probably you already know this piece. And in a, in a live performance, you would be quite intrigued to see how the what the performer does with it. You know, maybe she's taking this phrase at a slower tempo, and maybe there's some intentionality behind that, and then speeding up. So there's always a kind of surprise factor to it, almost, so, so to speak. Obviously, if you record that and you play it again and again, that surprise factor kind of disappears. So one of the um, one of the ideas I've been working with is that this. Uh, this change in the performing style is, is one of the reasons behind it is the increasing popularity of recordings. So more and more people uh, would listen to music through recordings as opposed to live. So this also changes the performance styles. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And uh, I've, I've noticed some too, even if you just listen to, even today, performers who mostly do live performance, there's more emphasis on the show and they often change the tempo and so on quite a bit. But when you record the music, there's more of a tendency to sort of perfect it and, and make sure that all those things are steady. Now, I understand that this age of the Gabinete Phonografico um, was fairly short, just encompassing, as you said, the end of the 1890s, beginning of the, the 1900s. What brought it to an end? Well, what happened is that a gramophone, so obviously a, a gramophone is a different technology than a phonograph, uh, which in, in some ways it's more, um, in some ways we can say it's better because a gramophone, for example, allows you to copy recordings in a much more efficient way. So you can make infinite copies of the same recordings, obviously from a commercial point of view, this is, this is better. And so Gramophone, the company, uh, first started to visit Spain in, the, in 1899. Uh, so for a few years, both Gramophone and the Gabinetes coexisted side by side, not always peacefully, <laughs> has to be said. Um, but eventually Gramophone uh, opened an office in Barcelona in, in 1903. And basically from there, it, it kind of really expanded a lot it, and it, it crowded out the market. Um, and a reason for that was that it was cheaper uh, because obviously if you can mass produce recordings 
it also means you can you can set lower prices so obviously the, the gabinetes couldn't really compete with that and also with with gramophone having this international uh, structure of different branches where you know their engineers would record music in brazil and sell it in germany or in, they would record in china and said sell in canada or whatever it was so obviously it means the the customers would also have access to a much broader repertoire so in that context the the gabinetes really couldn't compete so the last one to close was actually uencia, uencia costa that we've talked about and that it, it closed in 1905 so it was the first to open in 1896 the last to close in 1905 so we can say that the gabinetes era lasted for nine years Okay, well, so it was quite a short period. Now, just so everyone's clear, um, when you say the gramophone, these are the records that we think of today with the vinyl. Is that right? Yeah, well, they, uh, they are. They were mostly made of shellac, uh, uh, and they are seventy-eight RPM. So they are they are smaller. They are not the the full long play recordings, the vinyls that we think about today. They they didn't really come into existence until the nineteen forties. Okay. But we still can find lots of, for example, gramophone discs on eBay or in, in libraries. They are, they are, you know, there are more of, the, of them than there are of cylinders. So just w one question to conclude here. Um, if we think about all this research that you've done as a whole on these early phonographs in Spain, how do you think that studying this example of Spain can change the way that we think about the early history of recorded sound more generally? Well, I think the example of Spain is, is quite unique because in many other countries, if you go and read like histories of recorded music in individual countries, they tend to start with the multinationals. And so everything that came before in a way is ignored or even or maybe the, the sources don't exist anymore. So in Spain, we are lucky that these sources have survived and that there are also, you know, quite a lot of them in, in relative terms. And I suppose this has the advantage that uh, if you start um, telling the history of recorded music with the multinationals, basically you are ignoring a lot of local practices, uh, local specificities, which were hugely important in these early years of the, of the phonograph, of the recording industry. I don't think it was the case that basically Edison invents the phonograph and, and then everyone buys a phonograph and, and, and starts playing Edison um, cylinders and then gramophone records. But really, the, the way the recording industry uh, comes about is through the, through the efforts and through the experimentation of lots of uh, individuals at the local level, at the regional level, uh, and with individuals, I mean both recordists, but also scientists or um, musicians, and so on. So I think the, 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 Spanish, the Spanish case can really bring attention to those forgotten stories. Yeah, that, that's a very important contribution, I think. So thank you so much, Ava, for coming on the program and sharing some of those stories and, and some of these early recordings with us. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Historias. For additional information about our guest and a list of suggested readings, please visit our website at historiaspodcast.org. Also be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Spotify, and to follow us on Facebook or Twitter so that you can be notified of new episodes.